Hello and welcome to the Leathercraft Masterclass with me, Phil. And in this question and answer session, I'm gonna be tackling all the followers' questions sent through on Instagram stories. And there is a fresh batch of 10 questions today. And I'm also gonna be going live on Instagram right now. So if you're not on Instagram or you're not following me on Instagram, at Leathercraft Masterclass, so there's always fresh content on there that's not on YouTube, so make sure you follow me on Instagram as well, and that is where you will catch me live as well. So this is pre-recorded, obviously, but if you do wanna follow me live, then at Leathercraft Masterclass on Instagram. Now, right now, there's a free course that you can get on how to select the correct leather. There's also a 20-page tool list, which will help you to decide what tools you need and what tools you don't, depending on where you are in your journey. So click the little icon above, Go to leathercraftmasterclass.com, sign up, and I'm gonna send you absolutely free, a free video and a free 20-page tool guide. Absolutely indispensable stuff, guys, so make sure you have that. Now, I'm gonna be going live on Instagram, so if I do get any live questions, I'm gonna be tackling them as well, but I have a list of 10 questions right here, so let's get started. Cool, all right, lots of people joining. 53 people already, okay, that's pretty good. So starting with question number one, so I've printed it out this time, and I've also bullet pointed my answers. So I guess they're a little less impromptu than I've uh, done before. Question number one, starting at the top is, what projects should I tackle to make me a better craftsman? Now, I actually like this question. This is a question I don't think I've had before, but I was actually talking to someone on Instagram DMs today uh, who was asking me about watch straps specifically and getting started in watch straps, how long it takes to make and that kind of thing. And one thing I did mention and one thing that I've said in the past before is I've always thought that watch strap making really is one of those projects that will up your game. You're never quite the same craftsman or craftsperson or craftsman technically is uh, male or female, just like human. So craftsman, it's everybody. Uh, it makes you a better craftsman because you focus so much on the on the details and it, everything's just so much smaller. It's a lot more fiddly to make a watch strap, but it's one of those projects that really kind of makes you focus on being accurate with your work. Because let's say, for, for example, you make a large bag and you want it to be 612 millimeters long, okay? If you make it and you flip it inside out and you know, you've got your piping and you've hammered everything down and your seams look great and you've made it and you've put it on your table, instead of 612, it's 613 millimeters. You know, one millimeter is not really gonna make any difference to the functionality of the bag, the look of the bag. Uh, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. But if you're a millimeter out on a watch strap, then, you know, especially a width of a watch strap, it either it's not gonna fit or it's gonna be completely loose. It has to be accurate. And if, you're, if your seam on your watch strap is a millimeter out, it will be all you can see, all you can notice. It will just, every time you look at it, something's wrong. If you make a slight mistake with, you know, going around, putting your crease on there with your creaser and you slip off, it's all you'll ever see. So it's one of those things that really makes you slow down and focus on the details. So, and answering your question, what project should I tackle to make me a better craftsman? I would say watch straps is definitely up there. Another one that I would say is bag making. And the reason I say bag making is it's when you go from 
small projects, watch straps included, watch straps, wallets, keychains, pouches, and any kind of, kind of small to medium sized pocket. Pen pouch, which is available on Instagram TV, guys, if you wanna watch that. Um, all these small projects are absolutely fantastic, but when you start going into the larger bags, you start tackling something which you didn't really have to think about before, and that is, is larger scale like construction. Construction is, is probably how I'd, I'd think about it, because you know, you've got to tackle things on a much larger scale. You have to have a base, like a foundation of a house. You have the panels of the walls, the zip, the doors. You know, you've got pockets on the inside. You've got attachments. You've got handles, you've got bag feet, you've got all these different things, you've got linings, you've got reinforcements, and stuff that you haven't really had to think about up until now. So bag making is definitely gonna challenge your brain and takes you out of your comfort zone, especially if you're used to making small scale items. Um, so bag making really gets you thinking bigger and a little bit more about the overall build of something. Um, the last thing that I've written down is hard-sided cases. And yes, it does come under construction a little bit, but it kind of blends the accuracy of watch strap making and the construction of large bags. Because when you're making a hard-sided case, like an attache case, a trunk, a jewelry case, uh, things like that, if you're out by a millimeter, that means the case doesn't close. So you have to be constantly thinking about allowances for your seam, allowances for the lining, allowances for the hinge mechanism uh, and, and the lock. It gets you thinking a lot more moves ahead. So I liken hard-sided case making to chess. You can't just think about what you're making right now. You have to be thinking several moves ahead. If I do this now, will I be able to do that afterwards? If I install the locks now, will I be able to get the lining on? If I get the lining on now, will I be able to stitch in the hinge? If I stitch in the hinge now, will I be able to get the feet on? And you have to be thinking several moves in advance in order to kind of tackle that. So what project should I tackle to make me a better craftsman? The answer would be watch straps for detail, bag making for overall construction and hard-sided cases to make you start thinking several moves ahead uh, like a good craftsman can. So those are the three things that I recommend. All right, just making sure a lot of people are saying hello and hi. I, mean, I know I've missed questions that have gone up. Sorry guys, I will do my absolute best. Okay, so question number two. Uh, can you talk or provide tips on improving the backside of the stitch? Okay, so just so that you guys know what this person is asking me, uh, which is the front, which is the back. Uh, I think that's a good problem to have. Uh, yeah, so that's the front of the stitches. Sorry, these are gray stitches on black, so I don't know if you can see them. And there's the back. So for you guys on fixed focus, I don't know why I'm doing that. This is a little pen pouch. Now this is thin leather. What are we working with? An overall of two and a half millimeters there or something like that. Thinner leather is generally gonna have you stitching a little bit neater. Thicker leather is gonna provide you with a little bit more of a challenge uh, when it comes to a neat back um, stitches on the rear side. Because the thicker the leather, the more chance your pricking iron or your awl has to go off. Think of it like uh, a rifleman shooting at a range and he's pointing at a target 200 yards downrange. 
if he's off by half a degree on his sights, that means he's not even hitting the target downrange. But if you bring that target to 10 yards in front of him, it might be half an inch to the right, okay? So the further the, the target is, the more you're gonna be off if you're slightly off at the, at the rifle itself. And the same is when you're going through thick leather, if you're slightly off at the top, your pricking iron is at an angle, it's really off on the rear side. Same with your awl as you're penetrating through. So consistency of all use and consistency of pricking iron use is definitely something that I recommend you working on, which means if you're using an awl, you wanna make sure that if you're always using a stitching pony, don't keep switching from a stitching pony to saddler's clams. And if you're stitching saddler's clams upright, you know, don't keep switching between upright and an angle. Try and find a preference and keep it as consistent as you can. If you keep changing variables, you're gonna notice a difference, especially on the rear side, because you're coming in at a different angle, because you're kind of retraining your brain every, every time you change something that you do. Um, another thing is when you're, if, say for example, you're not using an awl. Uh, let's get a piece of leather here, it's a bit small, but here we go. Um, if you have a, a pricking iron and you have a flat piece of leather, your pricking iron should be always vertical, okay? If it's not, if it's very slightly out, the rear side is gonna be affected, okay? And the thicker the leather, the worse it is. So you always wanna make sure, let's get a pricking iron so that you can actually see what's going on. Uh, what should we have? Number six. And a mallet. All right, so taking a seat again. If your pricking iron is very slightly off to one side, it's gonna make a profound difference on the rear. But not only that, sometimes, and it's very difficult to notice because you probably need a high-speed camera, when you have your pricking iron very close to the edge, okay, if I press down firmly now, you can't really see it, but if I was to hit that, you would notice on a high-speed camera that this side of the leather would actually come up, okay? So it would come up on impact. And because the leather comes up and the pricking iron is going straight down, that means it's gonna come out on the rear side at a slightly different angle. So you might be going in two millimeters from the edge, but on the rear side, it's right next to the edge or maybe one millimeter away. So that's something to be aware of. Now I have done a blog, or I think it's called, are you making these five, or are you making these seven pricking iron mistakes? Uh, I wrote it some time ago now. So if you go onto leathercraftmasterclass.com, uh, click on blog and scroll down and you'll see it. And it just kind of goes into detail of uh, all the different mistakes that you can possibly make, even as far as if you're not hitting straight down with the mallet, and you're hitting slightly at an angle. It's very difficult to tell sometimes, but on striking, it moves the pricking iron across, and again, it can cause an issue. And if you're not doing everything consistently, and you're changing the way you do things all the time, you look at the rear stitches, and you're wondering why, why it's going wrong, why it doesn't look as neat as it could do. And sometimes it's not your stitching technique that you're, you know, you're using the wrong technique, is the foundation and the accuracy in which you began the stitches from using the pricking iron to using the awl to how you're stitching it to being consistent makes such a big difference. So it's something to, uh, to focus on. But yeah, check out that blog that I did. Absolutely free guys, obviously. Um, and another thing, going too close to the edge. Avoid 
making a stitch too close to the edge, which uh, causes the pricking iron to travel sideways, okay? Because there's more mass on one side and not enough on the other. So it will go, it will follow the path of least resistance. Uh, and that's another, another problem. Right. Uh, the old design says that happened to me. Uh -huh. uh, they said, what about a hand press? Are you talking about when you chuck one of these into a, like an arbor press? Uh, if that's what you're referring to, that can be very accurate. Um, it's a little bit more challenging going around corners, but you, I guess you can switch to a two tooth by hand. Uh, but I, yeah, I do know a lot of people that do that quite successfully using an arbor press and pressing the pricking iron through. That keeps things consistent, um, but you always want to make sure it's, again, it's not too close to the edge because the pricking iron wants to go towards the edge, but it can't because it's in a press and it means the leather wants to move backwards. So you've got to push it against a stop. Uh, it's a little bit more complex, but yeah, it can be quite successful, especially if you, uh, uh, if you're an apartment dweller and you can't make too much noise because of the neighbors and it's something con uh, to consider. Okay, so that's question number two. Uh, question number three. Now, question number three was uh, an older question from a, a few months back. I promised somebody that I would tackle the question back then because I didn't have time. What do you think of copying famous brands or other people's work? What do you think of copying famous brands or other people's work? Um, Copying other people's work is, is definitely a no-no to me. Um, it, it's not fair and it, it shows, I wanna be polite, but there's no better way of saying it. It shows a lack of imagination if you're copying other people's work, especially other individual artisans out there, if you're directly copying their work. It's not something I would advise uh, because you learn so much more by trying to come up with your own ideas and you won't always get it right and that's absolutely fine because there's so much to learn from getting it wrong. And as long as you, you can accept that, then you know, trying to come up with your own designs. I'd rather people pay the designer. I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, going online and you can pay designers to design bags and leather goods for you. There's a, a terrible stigma, I think, in the leathercraft community that you absolutely have to design everything yourself. And I think that's false because no one's gonna have a go at, a, I don't know, an Hermes Craftsman or a Dunhill Craftsman because he didn't or she didn't design the case or the bag that they're currently working on. No one would ever think of insulting them saying, you know, that works crap because you didn't design it. Well, of course you didn't design it. It was designed 50 years ago. That's just what they do for a living. But somehow, just because you make leather goods by hand, you have to be some kind of whiz-bang designer. And you've also got to be a good salesperson and you've also got to, be good at making your own website and you've also got to be good at customer customer services and you've also got to be you know there's so many things that it's sometimes better to delegate uh, a particular thing to a professional and i think there's nothing wrong with people who go to a professional designer and pay them to design their leather goods that they can then make by hand and make their patterns it's a thing personally i enjoy that part of the process so I don't do that, but it's just because I like designing. I like coming up with my own creations. I'm a creative person naturally, so it's a good outlet for me. 
But if it wasn't, and I just love the craft, I love the, the techniques and the craftsmanship and, and designing wasn't my thing, I'd outsource, absolutely. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Because it's not copying, you're having something made uh, by someone who just specializes in that. And if you're a great craftsman and they're a great designer, you're gonna have a better product than if you just had a go at designing. Um, so I think that that's one stigma that I wish would just die in the leathercraft community is that you, you absolutely have to design everything yourself. Um, but, but copying someone and trying to make their same product without their permission, I think is, is an insulting thing to do. It's not flattery, it really isn't. Uh, it's not something I would advise. But saying that, uh, taking inspiration is something very different. Now, for example, I've made an attache case before. That case design, that style has been going over 100 years, well over 100 years. I'm not the first person to make a belt. I'm not the first person to make a watch strap. Uh, I'm not the first person to make rolled handles. That's been done for a long time. So it's, you know, we take other people's ideas and then adapt them. And that's the whole idea of the Leathercraft Masterclass courses that I produce, is you take my techniques, the way I do things, and then you can adapt it uh, and try and improve on it or change it the, to make it more yours. You know, it's like you can take that and then make this. So you kind of own that technique now. And that's the idea behind everything that I do is teaching people to do something and then take it their own direction. I think that's wonderful. But, you know, a direct copy, I don't think is a good idea. Um, but taking inspiration, absolutely. And if you're not sure, ask the person. I really love the way you did this. Would you be insulted if I did my version of it? I love the technique. I've seen how you've done it. I'd like to adapt it my way, but, you know, I don't want to make it obvious that I've copied you, how do you feel about that? Nine times out of 10, people are gonna say it's absolutely fine and you can do it with their blessing. And it just takes a DM just to ask them, so I don't think it's a bad thing. Now, uh, copying famous brands, that's not so bad because you're not directly impacting an individual, but I, I think, I, I, I mean, I could, I could never do it personally. I don't have a good, uh, connection with things that aren't uh, original. It probably stems back from my youth, actually. You know what, I'll, I'll, t I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you a story. My first experience with fakes, okay? And it's, it's not an homage, it's, uh, it's, it's a fake, okay? This is my story and probably why I don't like copying or why I don't like fakes, not that I talk about it very much. But I remember growing up, um, came back, I came from quite humble beginnings. My dad worked for a roofing company. My mum was a housewife. Uh, four kids in the family. And so I, I never really had anything designer. I never had uh, anything that was expensive. And, you know, the Nike jacket, the Reeboks. Uh, you know, I just didn't have that. I mean, I had food in my belly, an education and a roof over my head. So that, you know, puts me ahead of 90% of people in the world. So I'm very grateful for that. But we weren't affluent. We didn't have a lot growing up. So I didn't get any, any kind of designer gear, if you know what I mean. But anyway, my mom, my older brother, went on holiday once to visit relatives. Uh, and they came back. And while they, they were gone, they picked up some gifts. So they came back, they were presenting gifts, they'd been to Italy, they crossed over on the board and they bought some stuff. And I got given a gift, I got given a bag. And when I opened the bag, inside 
was a Levi's belt, Levi Strauss belt. And I had a thing for Levi's. I always wanted a pair of Levi's jeans. They're too expensive, but I just loved it. So they bought me the belt and it was this, this black belt, had the Levi's logo on it and it was tooled all the way along, which was awesome. Uh, had a roller buckle on the end. It was a silver roller buckle. Absolutely loved it. And I just wore that all the time. I tucked every t-shirt into my jeans, probably my supermarket jeans, I'd have, so I could put this Levi's belt on the outside, showing all my friends, yeah, check this out, it says Levi's. I wore that thing, I was so proud, I loved it, I loved that belt. It was the only like designer, if, if Levi's is even designer, it's the only designer thing I had, only designer thing that I owned. And I remember one day my, my sister said to me, that logo is weird. I said, what do you mean? She goes, look, I have a Levi's t-shirt. I don't know where she got it from. And it was two horses. I think they're like two shire horses and they're both being whipped in opposite directions and they're both attached by a rope or a chain to these Levi's jeans and they're trying to pull them apart and they can't. It was kind of a, a stunt that Levi's had and it became their logo that the horses couldn't pull the jeans apart because they were so tough. And uh, I remember looking at my belt and there were no jeans in the middle. It was just like two shy horses in a tug of war against each other, which was weird. And then I looked at the official logo and I looked back and I looked, and it suddenly dawned on me that this was a fake. So my mum, my brother had picked it up at a local market in Ventimiglia in Italy for probably nothing. Uh, and it was nothing but a copy. And I just felt so disheartened. I felt so bad about the whole thing. I just, I felt, it felt like I was lied to. I was duped. I was made a fool of because I was telling everyone I got these Levi's. And it was just like this one thing that I had that I loved so much because it was the only designer thing that I had turned out to be a fake. And ever since then, I've just had this disdain for anything that's, that's fake, it's not real an homage, even if a design is by a designer, but it looks like something from another designer, I just can't, I can't. <laughs> so my association with things that are, are fake or copies is probably a little bit different to the average person because I, I got burned at a young age when my mind was developing perhaps, I don't know, but I just can't deal with fakes. So that is, uh, that is my story. So what do I think of copying famous brands or other people's work? I do not agree with it and I do not recommend it because it sends a message to you yourself as a craftsman more than anything else and that's more damaging. Okay, so question number four. Okay, so how to avoid edge paint from gathering to the ends or the center of a radius cut edge? Okay, so I'll say that again. How to avoid edge paint from gathering at the end or at the center of a radius cut edge. Now, what does that person mean? What do they mean? Okay, so let's take this little stopwatch. And as an example, imagine this was just a cylinder of leather. Okay, so just a circle of leather. If you put edge paint around the sides here, gravity is gonna to wanna to pull it right down to the bottom. Okay, and if you put edge paint on the other side, it's gonna to wanna to come down to the bottom. Anytime that you have a curve in something, gravity is gonna to wanna to pull it to its lowest point, okay? So how do you get around that? If you have an intricate shape, perhaps you have the, the top of a bag. Let's see, hold on. One second, guys. I'm gonna get my bag over here. Uh, now this is not edge paint. 
This is the bag that I walked here with today with all my camera equipment. This is the de Havilland travel bag. I'm using this constantly now. But to give you a more accurate example, say that this wasn't piped on the edges and it was a cut edge, okay? So let's pretend it wasn't a flipped bag. I put edge paint along the top. When it comes to the side and I start edge painting down here, it wants to drip down to the bottom curve, okay? And if I turn it this way, it wants to drip and it is constantly following gravity. So the first two obvious ways of dealing with that is Try if you can, when you have an intricate design where the edge paint can flow, try and use thinner edge paint, okay? As, or apply less, is, which is what I'm trying to say. So don't apply a big dollop of edge paint so that it wants to drip. Try and put a small amount of edge paint on there and then pull it along the edge, okay? That's all you have to do to make it thinner. Now, another way of tackling that is to thicken up the edge paint. So. United's edge paint, for example, comes with, or doesn't come with, but they do provide uh, a thickener where you can add between uh, one and 3% to thicken the edge paint, okay? So the more you apply, the thicker it becomes, not to the point where it's like putting gel on the edge. It still needs to flow so that it can self-level but it just thickens it up so that by the time it does start migrating, it's starting to dry on the surface and it's, it's formed a skin on the surface, uh, which should hold it in as it dries nicely. So thinner layers, but also uh, using edge paint that's, that's generally thicker. Um, another one that I've noted down is, which is much easier really, if, you, if it's possible, if your design isn't too intricate, is if you have a curve, and you've edge painted it, if you let it dry, it will just want to fall to the bottom and, and perhaps even drip off. But if you turn it to its side, then it hasn't got any point that it drops off. It might kind of dry a little bit more to one side, but once you've sanded it and applied a second layer, you can let it dry this way and, and alternate and, uh, and come up with something that's gonna be a bit more smooth. So if you can let it dry on its side, especially if you're using a thinner amount or a smaller amount and you've thickened it too, then you're probably not gonna have uh, too much of a problem. Okay, so we're definitely over half an hour, so we're okay. So have you made, ever made your own improvised tools? If so, what were they and why? Okay, so have you ever made your own improvised tools? If so, what were they and why? Now improvised kind of means off the cuff as you were you know, in the middle of something, quickly make something as an improvised tool. Not really. Um, I've made tools, but not improvised tools. Well, I guess something like this, which is what I use sometimes for edge paint, if I need to apply it uh, more, like for a long seam or something, or a, a thick edge, this holds quite a bit. This is just a bamboo skewer, and I've just wrapped a linen thread around one end so I can gr grip it properly. And I rub it with uh, beeswax, put it over a flame, and the beeswax melts in and waxes the wood. That way I can just wipe edge paint off very easily, so it's like a non-stick. Uh, I guess you could say that's improvised. Uh, other tools that I've made, uh, this one here. So this is uh, ad actually adapted from a pre-made awl that I've reshaped, taken off the end, put in a collet, so I can actually undo it and then take out he says, <laughs> I can actually take out the all blade and then change it for another one. Uh, why did I do it, as the question is asking? 
so that I can use uh, anything from one millimeter all blades for really, really intricate stitching, like the recent um, leather wrapped belt course that I produced, all the way up to uh, the trunk handle that I've made, which is a three millimeter wide all blade. So it becomes more modular, becomes more adaptable. Uh, what else have I made? Uh, I've made this, which is a Skyven knife. Why did I make it? Uh, I like the 50 degree angle, uh, which is very uncommon. I find it the best for the way I skive. I like having a thin skiving knife. That way I can get nice and low. Uh, it's made of high speed steel, which is a really, really good steel, about a 61 Rockwell. Uh, 6162 I think this is and I like having a 13 degree angle uh, it gives a really nice clean and in this kind of steel long-lasting edge so uh, I couldn't find anything especially not with a nice wrap on the handle which is goatskin I couldn't find anything uh, that fit my needs as well as that and it's now my favorite skyving knife because it's made for me by me so uh, yeah so improvise perhaps not but yeah I do like to make my own tools I mean I made my previous workshop I made uh, this table that we're on, which is, to, uh, there's two of them, there's an eight foot by four foot, two of those, there's one in the corner for the hot foil and skiving machine. So I made those as well. So I kind of like, I like making things that are custom for me, uh, rather than kind of like, you know, most things I will buy, but there's a lot of things that I, I'm very particular about, so I'll make them myself. Uh, da, 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 da. I use, uh, Luska Leather says, I use untreated veg tan for a lot of my products. I just dye it whatever color and then hit it with tallow balm. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely fine. It's, it's definitely a more economical way of making leather goods if you can uh, buy undyed, untreated veg tan and then dye it and treat it yourself. Then you can, you know, especially if you want a really custom color or perhaps you want to apply a patina or especially if you want to tool the leather, then absolutely that's a good way of doing it. To be honest with you though, nothing will ever beat the dye and finish that comes from uh, well-tanned leather at the factory. Especially a dye that goes all the way through the leather because you know if it ever gets a deep scratch, it's still the same color underneath. So a struck through leather. So there are, there are pros and cons. I mean, you've got more creative freedom when you do it yourself. Um, but it also takes more time um, and sometimes it can make the leather stiff and inflexible because it hasn't been part of the tanning process. It's something that's done afterwards, especially with alcohol dyes. Uh, so there are pros and cons, but if it works for you, then absolutely keep doing it. Personally, if I have a choice, I would rather it's the color that I want from the tannery um, rather than having to do it myself. It's, a lot less messy, first of all. But yeah, it, it really depends on whether it's working for you or not. If you're struggling with it, then you know perhaps uh, consider working with uh, pre-dyed, pre-finished leathers. What's your thoughts on Novo, Novo Napa leather? Is it worth it? Uh, it's very good. I mean, uh, Novo Napa, got a bit of a brain fire. That's uh, what Hermes call uh, Berenia, right? Which comes under many names. Don't know why, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, a combination tanned leather, struck through, dyed through, calf, uh, minor correction on the surface, I believe. Uh, so top grain, uh, semi-pigmented. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of leathers that are just as good out there that, that aren't heard of, especially from Italy. Very, very similar, just as good. 
I think it's it's got legendary uh, status because it's it's used in uh, in top end bags that that people have heard of, so it gets that reputation. But is it the best? Not necessarily. Uh, it's still very good. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, sir. Yeah, no worries. All right, so. Improvised tools, we've done that. So we have one, two, three, four, five to go. Uh, how to sharpen a round or oval punch. Now I do, if you go on my Instagram, um, if you scroll down, you should see uh, some images. Oh, you can't really see them behind me. You can kind of for you guys on Instagram and for you guys on YouTube, these uh, punches there. I do have a post where I show me spinning the uh, the round punches in a chuck in a drill press while I use a little bit of sandpaper, fine grit sandpaper, uh, just to sharpen the sides. Uh, and that just kind of like cleans out up the outside. So we've got a nice uh, sharp um, hole punch to work with. For uh, oval punches, I tend to add a little bit of um, permanent marker around the outside, put it in a vise, and then just use a needle file just to flatten the sides a little bit more because a lot of them come like, you know, the edges like that, I like them a little bit lower so they go through the leather a bit easier. Um, I find that doing that in a vise just helps. It should last a very long time. It's not something you need to do very often. It might be many, many years before you need to really sharpen it. Uh, I have seen sharpeners which are like a cone that goes on the inside. I would avoid those at all costs. The reason being the inside hole on a hole punch is not straight walled, it actually tapers out like this. So that as you your leather gets punched, it goes through and it can fall out easily. When you sharpen the inside with a cone, you actually start doing this. You put a bevel on the inside, which means your leather is gonna start getting stuck. And it also cuts slightly larger. So always attack it from the outside, not the inside. That would be my uh, recommendation. Moving on to the next question. Someone sent me a request to be in my video. It's probably by accident, I assume. <laughs> uh, what are your top three favorite tools and why? Uh, I'm going to assume that you're talking about tools in general in this one rather than a specific brand or model. Uh, my top three favorite alls and tools, I've given it away now is an awl, a pricking iron, and a round knife. Uh, it's not a lot you can't do with those three. I mean, it's like you're not gonna get far with just three tools, but uh, round knife, you can, you, know, you can skive, you can cut uh, and do a lot. An awl, I think, is uh, essential, especially if you're gonna do uh, intricate leather work, uh, fine luxury leather goods, and things with thick leather. I think it's a, a skill that a lot of people are afraid to, to kind of tackle is, is using the awl. Uh, but I would say the awl, the pricking iron, obviously, because it just makes life a lot easier and I love pricking irons. And I love collecting them, especially the older ones. So those are the main reasons, because there's these all pricking iron and round knife, so universal, you can do a lot with them. And uh, I just enjoy using them, if I'm honest. Are you gonna save the live? Absolutely, it's also on YouTube, by the way, so you'll be able to watch it in HD. Uh, how to build a following on Instagram to sell to not just leather crafters? 
Okay, so for, this is more for people out there who, who are less into the hobby um, and more into actually making leather goods to sell as a side hustle, as a side business, uh, or maybe they're full time. So this is kind of appealing to you if you're if you're there now or you're looking to advance your craft from a hobby to something that's making your money or at least paying for your tools and your leather and your time. Uh, how to build a following on Instagram to sell to not just other leather crafters. That's a very difficult one because it's, it's something you'll see in a lot in the craft community in general, whether that be pottery, whether that be sewing, whether that be um, you know, watchmaking, whether that be leather craft. There's so many different crafts out there. And, uh, you know, some of the top people you'll notice on their Instagram accounts, it's other people in that craft. They want to know things that you know, or they want to ask questions, or they want to talk about the craftsmanship. And sometimes that can put customers off a little bit. So if you go on a leather craft account, and you see a lot of the, the comments underneath are towards leather crafters. What edge paint did you use? What glue did you use? And you're kind of communicating about that kind of thing. It's unusual as a customer to read those comments uh, because you're not really, sh you know, someone's saying, you know, in their mind, how do you use a Diebel schlub on your, on your flube? Is that using the, the round tick? You know, it's just like words that they're not like, what is this? I don't understand what's going on. And people generally, customers who are confused, never buy. If you can remember that, customers who are confused, they're not sure what's going on. They're not, they don't quite understand what's happening. No, thank you. That's generally what happens. That it's what happens to you. It's what happens to me. If we go on a website and we're looking to buy something, we're just not quite sure yeah, no, no, it's it's a no from me. Um, so you have to be very much aware of that. If you're making an account and you're talking a lot about techniques, you're showcasing a lot of your tools, uh, you're giving demonstrations on your craft and certain things, that can be that can be helpful for actual real world living, breathing customers. But you have to remember that you're appealing to a, a demographic that isn't buying from you, which is other leather crafters. So, you know, my recommendations was don't make content that directly attracts other leather crafts people um, because it's not helping you. And if you're doing this for a living and you're putting food on the table with your craft, you know, it's very nice uh, to be able to share your craft with people, but I wouldn't do it publicly. I would probably DM people if they ask you a direct question. And uh, yeah, so don't try and focus on content that attracts other leather crafters. Even if it makes a lot of likes, a lot of follows, and you get more people following your content, just remember that 400 interested customers will outsell 50,000 other leather crafters all day, every day, and twice on Sundays, okay? Do not think that numbers, likes, follows, subscribes correlate to income in any way, shape or form. Um, I can guarantee you a lot of the, the lowest uh, viewed videos on my YouTube have caused the most emails of interested customers compared to something that reaches a broad audience. Um, so, you know, try and, try and kind of disengage from the idea that just because something gives you a lot more likes, like a picture of your tools, that doesn't really help customers understand what your products are and why it's for them. So try not to make other uh, content that just appeals to other leather crafters. 
Um, answer Leathercrafter questions via DM. And if you have too many Leathercraft questions on your products that you're trying to sell to customers, you know, feel free to go in the DMs and answer that person and then just remove the comment because you don't want a sea of Leathercraft comments. Uh, what you want ideally as a customer to see is lots of people are also interested in buying that thing as well. So, you know, you have to monitor what's going on on there. So I've also put, create content that allows customers to visualize what it's like to own your product. Um, so use your product in context. If you've got a nice wallet that you've created, go ahead and, and you know, go to a cafe and take a picture of the wallet next to uh, a coffee or a glass of wine or something like that, or perhaps on a desk next to a computer and some other business things that kind of give people a visualization of, of where it will be used, or perhaps you're about to pay for something in a restaurant and there's a picture of you using the wallet or whatever it is. Allow your customer to visualize what it will be like to own that item so they can kind of put themselves in your shoes, um, you know, and real like just close-ups of stitching and things like that doesn't quite hit that mark. So you have to, you have to think like a customer. And again, I've uh, done a really good blog on this, leathercraftmasterclass.com, go to the blog section and there's an article, uh, oh, I forget the name of it now, you put me on the spot, but it's a picture of like, where's Wally, but a thousand where's Wally's. Click on that one, it's all about business and selling your craft. So if you're interested in perhaps selling on the side, then go ahead and uh, give that a read. Uh, da, da, da. Another thing I put is if a customer, okay, if a living, breathing, real customer comes onto your account and says something like, hi there, uh, do you make this wallet in red? What I wouldn't recommend, I see all the time is, hi there, shoot me a DM. Why not make that public? Unless they're asking specifics about how much is it gonna cost or price and things like that, that's probably better done on DMs. But if you wanna answer something like, absolutely, we have several different shades of red. If you're interested, uh, DM me your email and I can email you a picture of all the different colors we have. Or yeah, I'll absolutely, what I'll do is put um, some pictures of the different reds in my story right now and try and interact so other people can see. Because if, if one customer asks a question, there's likely 20 other people that are probably also thinking the same thing or would also be interested in knowing. So try not to make everything a secretive thing, keep it public. And if you can create an interaction between customers and yourself, uh, that shows other customers that other people are interested in as well and it kind of snowballs from there. Well, that's the idea. Okay, uh, last two questions. Ed, edge paint versus burnishing on veg tan. Edge paint versus burnishing on edge tan, a uh, veg tan. Now typically, vegetable tan leather, the acceptable edge, the easiest edge, is probably a burnished edge. Another option would be um, skiving the edge on your veg tan and, and turning it, so you have a turned edge. Uh, edge binding and all sorts of things that you can do. But a lot of people don't go the route of using edge paint on vegetable tanned leather. I'm not quite sure why, because it can work rather well in certain circumstances. Edge paint was typically always used on chrome tanned leather, um, which is it's probably where it's best. But I think it really depends on what you're making. I mean, this is vegetable tanned leather and I've put edge paint on it. 
And the reason I've put edge paint on it is because on the inside, we've got chrome tanned goat skin. So we'd have a layer on the outside of, of veg tanned calf, on the other side, veg tanned calf, and then you've got two layers of the lining on the inside, which isn't gonna burnish quite as well. So in that case, you know, I've sanded the edge, I've heated it to kind of level and iron the edge down, and then I've put on a couple layers of edge paint on there. Um, because it's not gonna burnish that great because of the lining that's on the inside of it. So in that case, it would work. So I think it really depends on your design. But if you wanna make a product that's just all veg, veg tan leather and you're comfortable um, just using a bit of edge paint on there and that's your thing, then absolutely, I think with the right design, it can look really nice. All right, and last question, last question. Do you wax polyester thread like linen? Do you wax polyester synthetic thread like you do linen natural thread? Uh, I would say yes, I find that polyester thread stitches a little bit more, behaves itself a little bit more uh, with wax on it. Also makes the thread a little bit heavier so it hangs better as you're stitching. It doesn't get in the way and caught up on, on as many things. Uh, and it stitches a little bit smoother. Um, it's not absolutely essential because uh, synthetic leather, uh, synthetic threads like polyester, especially long staple polyester or continuous staple polyester. Um, what's the word for that now? There is a name for it. That's no, gone. Um, it, you know, it doesn't have any ends to it. So it actually slips through the holes that you created with your pricking iron or your, your awl very well. So it doesn't really need uh, wax, but I do find that it, you have a, an easier stitching experience um, when you're stitching with polyester thread that has been waxed. Now you can buy it waxed, but realistically, uh, most of the time, if you pull waxed uh, polyester through your fingernail, nothing will come off. I, I think there a lot of them aren't actually waxed. I think what they do is, is put a little bit of uh, some kind of uh, synthetic silicon over the top of it to make just make it feel a little bit more slippery. I'd, li I'd like to actually see if they do wax them because I can never see it on there, even if you twist it the wrong way and make it open up. Can't really see wax like you can on some linens. Uh, Cyrus, hello. Number 1972 underscore London says, hi Phil, on the 0.35 thread, what size John James needles should you use? I'd probably still use uh, 004, something like that. Uh, if you wanna go smaller, you can, but I don't think it's really necessary. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the vast majority of everything that I stitch is done with 004 John James and occasionally 002, like if I need the extra length, but I've actually just done an Instagram TV on, uh, on using uh, different needles with thick thread, so uh, check that out. But yeah, I, I probably would still use 004, yeah, for sure. Uh, right, and NG Design FR, hello, how are you doing? I hope you're doing well. Nicholas, so uh, do you wax polyester thread like I do linen? Yeah, I'll pull it through, pull it through a block of beeswax, absolutely, uh, before stitching. Uh, Jones, how are we doing for time? All right, a little bit of time left. How do you determine a good stitch spacing for different projects? That, I mean, that's, I don't think we really have time. Um, tell you what, on the next Q&A, which is next month, uh, throw that in when you see the stories come up 
um, so that I can give you a bit of a longer run up because we're literally running out of time here. Uh, Cyrus says, you're the wizard, thank you. Hello from India, hello from England. I love Ritza Tiger Thread brand, yeah. A lot of people do. Cool, right, so that's the end of the Q&A, guys. Thanks for watching. Don't forget this is gonna be on YouTube as well and also saved on Instagram TV. If you're not following me on YouTube, just remember there's a lot of content that's gonna be on YouTube that's not necessarily on Instagram and vice versa. So if you're on YouTube, follow me on Instagram. If you're on Instagram, follow me on YouTube. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and if you like this video, share with your friends or people that you think this video might benefit as well. Don't be selfish, share it with your friends. <laughs> cool, well, if there are no more questions, thank you very much for joining me guys, and I will see you next Q&A session. Thanks a lot, take it easy.